Welcome to the World Languages Collaborative Podcast, a series of podcasts aiming to help language teachers improve their craft through innovative ideas, strategies, and best practices from expert teachers. The World Languages Collaborative brings language teachers together from all over the state of Georgia and beyond to exchange ideas and perspectives on teaching and learning languages. The World Languages Collaborative podcast is an extension of this effort and is brought to you by the Department of World Languages and Cultures at Georgia Southern University. I'm your host, Grant Gearhart, Associate Professor of Spanish at Georgia Southern. My guest today is my colleague, Professor Yusuf Sali. Yusuf is a senior lecturer in Arabic and a 2021 recipient of the College of Arts and Humanities Award of Distinction for Teaching. Yusuf studied sociolinguistics at Hassan II University in Casablanca, Morocco, and also holds an MA in Humanities and Linguistics from the University of Louisville. Today, Yusuf and I discuss what it's like teaching Arabic in the United States, what it takes to get a program in a less commonly taught language such as Arabic off the ground, and how he's been successful connecting with his students outside the classroom. Please welcome Yusuf to the podcast. Okay. Welcome, Yusuf Sali, to the podcast. Thanks for being a guest today. Thank you, Grant, for having me. I'm really happy to be with you. Uh, why don't we start off? Just tell us a little bit about yourself, your teaching, um, why you got into the profession. Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Yusuf Sali. I'm uh, originally from Morocco. I was born and raised in the city of Casablanca in Morocco. And uh, I came uh, to the U.S. in 1999 with the hope of uh, continuing my uh, graduate studies. And my plan uh, coming here was uh, uh, to uh, study and teach uh, linguistics. Uh, I have a, an, a bachelor degree in uh, sociolinguistics, but uh, coming here to the US and uh, uh, with September 11 happening, uh, that made me think a little bit more about what I want to do. Uh, in my career. And that's when I started thinking about uh, uh, teaching Arabic. And uh, I finished my graduate studies at uh, University of Louisville and um, started teaching Arabic uh, at uh, Eckerd College in Florida. I started their Arabic program there. And at the same time, or a year later, uh, I was approached by uh, University of, uh, of Tampa. Uh, to start their Arabic program as well and worked there. And in 2012, uh, you had the opportunity to come to Georgia Southern to uh, kind of start or revive the Arabic program. I think Georgia Southern had uh, an Arabic program for, for a long time. But uh, unfortunately, the, from what I heard, the, the person or the, the professor who was teaching Arabic passed away after uh, a longer time serving here. And uh, uh, after his uh, his passing, uh, the university was kind of working with the uh, Fulbright uh, assistant. And there was a time when they decided that they need a, a full-time professor. And that's when uh, when I came in 2012. And uh, uh, the rest is history, as, as we say. Uh, it's been a great uh, experience. And I'm very, very happy I made that decision to come to Georgia Southern. Well, I feel, feel feel very good in saying that Yusuf is, a, is an outstanding colleague, and he has, as he says, revived 
the Arabic program here, I'd say that's that's an understand understatement. Um, our Arabic program is thriving under his leadership. I'm curious, maybe you could tell our our listeners a little bit about what it takes to revive a language program. Kind of what what are the steps and strategies you've employed to be as as successful as you have been with Arabic? Yeah, one of the most important things that I uh, try to keep uh, in mind uh, is uh, uh, joyful, is being joyful. Uh, being joyful as a person and being joyful as a as a, as a as a teacher of of Arabic, you know, uh, learning new things uh, make us uh, happy. And like I said, I'm I'm, I'm four years old. Uh, I learned something new yesterday from one of my students, and you know, I felt happy. I I, I was smiling when I uh, when that happened, and uh, that's what I try to keep in mind to make the learning or learning Arabic for my students, a joyful experience, either inside the classroom or outside the classroom. I don't know why we have to make, a, you know, a teaching uh, or learning uh, languages uh, difficult or painful. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful uh, thing to to teach and to learn. And we have to keep in mind to, to do it with joy and to make uh, our students' experiences joyful when they are learning uh, the language. The second thing that I try to keep in mind uh, is to be present, you know, uh, three uh, hours a week for my students to be in class is is not enough. So I try to be uh, present in their life outside the classroom, you know, to be uh, present through activities, through one-on-one meetings, through group meetings, through events that we do in, 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 in outside the class. And the last thing that I try to keep in mind is uh, just to be innovative, you know, uh, uh, try to, you know, innovate my uh, my strategies and my uh, my experiences and my teaching styles every every semester or every academic year and try to see what worked and what didn't work and try to uh, learn from my students and try to kind of uh, uh, do the things that probably are uh, what we say outside the box, that uh, something uh, new, something uh, innovative, something that can uh, reach uh, young people and can talk to them and that they can interact with it more than uh, other things. So those are the three most important things for me is uh, be joyful, be present and be innovative. And and you've been an Arabic instructor for a while now. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of Arabic teaching in the United States? Yeah, I think the you know the history of Arabic uh, teachings go back a long time ago. I think uh, the first phase in the American study of Arabic was uh, uh, probably uh, before signing the declaration of, of independence you know uh, it was introduced to um, complement the study of hebrew and the old testament in in, in the 17th century or even be, be before the century so that kind of uh, was the uh, the first uh, you know uh, phase of uh, of teaching arabic in the us uh, the reasons behind it was uh, mostly theological the second phase, I think, came in the 18th century, and that was uh, uh, the reason behind it were, was uh, philological. A lot of, uh, at that time, a lot of uh, uh, professors uh, at universities were European coming to teach here, mostly Germans, and uh, their um, interest was was in philology. So that, you know, uh, kind of uh, changed, uh, you know, uh, the reason why Arabic was taught in uh, in academia in, in the U.S. And in the 20th uh, 
century, there was an increased interest in uh, in archaeological field in general, uh, in the U.S., especially uh, re- regarding the Middle East. And with this, uh, an interest in Arabic dialects, especially Egyptian, kind of uh, started to uh, to rise. So uh, uh, we started to see uh, teaching languages or dialects, not just uh, teaching mother standard Arabic. And uh, uh, after the Second World War, uh, or the Second World War brought uh, a revolution in the Arabic study. I think at that, you know, after the war or during the war, there was an immediate need to to train combat uh, infantrymen and intelligent personnel to function in and do research in in the Arab world. And that lasted for for a long time until, of course, uh, as we all know, uh, September 11 happened. And that kind of was the uh, what we call uh, the Sputnik, you know, uh, just as the launching of the Soviet satellite in 1957 had uh, resulted in um, like a, a windfall, a windfall of uh, U.S. government funding for higher education in the United States. Uh, so did the uh, nine uh, September 11. Uh, it led to uh, intensive uh, government interest in uh, and funding of Arabic and other critical languages, especially you know. Especially uh, Arabic, so we saw an increase in government support for Arabic languages program, uh, which was also uh, mirrored by a surge in uh, student interest. So um, we saw, you know, a surge. I think uh, between the nineties and uh, between 90, 1998 and two thousand two or two thousand three, we saw like the Arabic enrollment in the United States uh, kind of like nearly doubled. So again, uh, just uh, uh, a short. Uh, uh, you know, description uh, about uh, the, the the history of of Arabic in, in in the United States. So now we are over twenty years past um, September eleventh. What what sort of what's your perspective on language teaching in that time, and what are some of the challenges that uh, teaching Arabic in the United States has faced and continues to face? The the uh, to describe the the time, especially after you know September 11, uh, and like I said, uh, there was a a big surge in uh, in uh, student interests, and mostly that interest was a uh, political and uh, and military interest. You know, so uh, uh, a lot of students came with the uh, idea to learn. Uh, Arabic for political reasons or for military reason, and because of, of the funding, also from the State Department and from the uh, uh, from the education department uh, as well uh, helped, you know, uh, uh, the surge of 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 the students' numbers. Uh, those are the reason at that time, you know. Uh, after we started seeing, uh, you know, other reasons such as. Uh, professional reasons where students saw that, you know, there's also a lot of opportunities in learning Arabic for for professional reasons. So uh, especially uh, uh, trade, you know, so uh, we saw also uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of that, as well as uh, as family reasons, a lot of uh, our students are uh, heritage speakers. Uh, After that surge, now I think we're uh, uh, seeing a decline in in uh, the numbers of of the students uh, because uh, most of our students now don't uh, uh, hear or then to interact uh, with Arabic, uh, especially in the news. So uh, this is a new generation, and uh, 
we don't hear a lot uh, they grow up not knowing uh, about september 11 and you don't hear a lot about uh, about uh, about that so uh, uh as we say you know uh, they're not uh, interacting with with arabic outside university uh, uh, so when they come to the university a lot of them don't uh, don't know uh, why it's important to to learn arabic so that's one of the uh, the difficulties that we're, we're dealing with is in, in in learning and teaching arabic and some of the other challenges is the scarcity of instructional materials and, and pedagogies unfortunately you know we don't have a lot of instructional materials in arabic and the reason you know for that is for a long time we have the you know a problem of uh what what do we teach uh what arabic do we teach in college do we teach uh, mother standard arabic do we teach dialects do we teach both of them so uh, we have instructional material that are related to teaching arabic as a mother standard form and there are materials that you know uh, for example for, for dialects but uh, you have to choose either that this or that but if you want to teach for example uh, mother standard arabic with with the dialect uh, you're always faced with them uh, you know uh, uh the problem of the scarcity of uh, the scarcity of, uh, of of the materials unfortunately these are some of the uh, problems that um, uh, i that we have we're dealing with when uh, when uh, when we are teaching arabic well, you mentioned that there are scarcity of resources, and, and I guess I can understand that. that that would be a tremendous challenge in order to create and grow programs, I would imagine, because what you rely on is the, the sole expertise of uh, the Arabic instructor, but it would become difficult to even create a pool of potential Arabic instructors without uh, ample materials. So what strategies have you employed in your classes? Because you have been very successful uh, both at the, the creating Arabic program level, so at the program design level. Um, what strategies have helped you become successful at the curricular level? Some of the things that I uh, tried is uh, definitely uh, uh, one thing, especially on the uh, upper division level, is uh, create uh, courses that can speak to to my students and uh, you know uh, speak to their to their needs. Uh, we have, uh, like I said, uh, a lot of uh, of our students are ROTC students, so uh, uh, definitely that's something to. Uh, that I take into considerations when I'm uh, designing my courses is to be able to uh, speak to the needs of of those students uh, as well as uh, uh, other students who are you know majoring in uh, political science or international studies. So when I design my uh, uh, upper division courses, I take that in, into consideration. For my intermediate and uh, elementary level levels, I try to make sure to. Uh, while I'm using the uh, uh, textbook that focuses on uh, MSA, which is Mother Standard Arabic, and it's the form that is used for uh, writing Arabic, uh, I try to make sure to teach at the same time the the dialect, so that when my students are interacting with the interacting with the native speakers of Arabic, uh, that they are interacting in uh, a language that uh, those native speakers uh, understand 
So uh, while uh, they can, my students can read and write in mother standard Arabic, I try to make sure that they also uh, can speak and understand one of the dialects of, of the uh, Arab world. And, uh, you know, that's one of the problems also that we are facing uh, with is what kind of dialects or what dialects do we teach? You know, do we teach the most uh, famous uh, dialects such as uh, the Egyptian dialect and the Levantine dialect? Or do we teach, uh, for example, the uh, Maghribi dialects or do we teach the, the Gulf dialects? So it's a, it's one of those uh, uh, issues that Arabic professors deal with. And for me, since my study abroad is uh, in, in Morocco, I try to make sure that, you know, my students from an elementary stage that they are aware of the Moroccan dialect. And the Moroccan dialect is a, a formal dialect that is spoken in North Africa. So if they're able to understand the Moroccan or speak the Moroccan dialect, they're able to probably, uh, you know, communicate with uh, roughly about 50 million people that live in Morocco, Mauritania, Algeria, Tunisia, and, and, and Libya. Uh, so that's one thing I try to do is to kind of uh, uh, mix the teaching of uh, mother standard Arabic with the teaching of, uh, of the dialect. And also on the upper division levels, I try to uh, design my courses based on uh, the needs of, uh, of our students here at Georgia Southern. Yes, you're definitely well known in our department for your cultural programming. Tell us a little bit about the cultural prog programming that you do outside of class. I know you have uh, Arabic coffee hour, I believe, and you have had guest speakers and guest presenters. You also have the study abroad program. Tell us a little bit about those and how they interact with your classroom teaching. Yeah, one thing I, when I first came here, one uh, important task for me to uh, to do is to create a, an Arabic club with the, you know, uh, the help of uh, my students and, and my TAs at that time. So in 2012, uh, uh, we started the Arabic club and uh, uh, this club has been a, a big, big part of the of the Arabic program because through this uh, uh, club, we do a lot of events, as, as you mentioned, uh, Grant, uh, one of the most uh, famous events and an event that we've been uh, holding uh, since 2012 is Arabic Coffee Hour. And Arabic Coffee Hour is a weekly event. That is, uh, you know, uh, open to all students, uh, staff, and faculty. We don't uh, teach Arabic during this Arabic coffee hour. It is mainly about culture. So when students come to this uh, coffee hour and they don't speak Arabic, they don't feel like they're excluded. So they come and they learn about, uh, you know, Arabic culture through food, music, dancing, you know, uh, clothing, and, and and so on. And it's one of our most uh, successful event and uh, every of course every semester every year we try to you know uh, bring something new to it a lot of other events that we've been doing through the years uh, is uh, our events that we try to uh, collaborate with other departments or with other uh, 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 students organizations. I try to, like I said, uh, one of my important things to focus on is innovation. So I try to kind of uh, collaborate with other departments, such as the Department of Political Science. Uh, I collaborated with the, you know, uh, the Department of, of Nursing and, and, and so on. A lot of departments that we collaborated with so that we can, you know, uh, highlight the Arabic culture, but also 
try to um, you know uh, uh, let other students who are not uh, probably aware that we um, offer Arabic here know that we offer Arabic and that they can uh, they can join us. So we do a lot of events such as uh, guest lectures. Uh, we do uh, uh, fashion shows. We do Arabic poetry nights. We do Arabic music nights. Uh, and we do uh, movie nights. We do a lot of events, and we try to collaborate with the, with the, with other departments so that we can uh, reach out to other uh, groups of of students that we don't see on a daily basis here in this building. I want to to ask you a question. I want to shift gears for a second and and, sure. and talk about um, one thing. I think as language teachers, we have to do with our students is sort of manage expectations so that. You know, students don't feel like if I take four years of Spanish or whatever language in high school, I'm going to be fluent. Or if I get a degree in a language, I'm going to be necessarily really proficient or or at, at a high level. Um, I think language teachers, we sometimes have to manage student expectations when it comes to what they can really accomplish assuming that they're not living abroad or living immersed, uh, but just what they're able to accomplish from being in our classrooms. How have you been able to manage student expectations, um, given the complexity of the Arabic language when compared to English or a Romance language like French or um, Spanish that's that's cl that's closely, much more closely related to English? Yeah, th thank you, Grant, for this uh, question, Ian. Yeah. I like it a lot. And uh, just for, for your speaker, just to give an idea before I answer your questions, just to give an idea, like you, you said, uh, I talked a little bit about uh, mother standard Arabic. When we talk about Arabic or the teaching of Arabic, we have uh, three forms of Arabic. The, the first form is uh, classical Arabic, and that's the language found in, in the Quran and that was used from the period of the, let's say, the pre-Islamic Arabia uh, until the, the 16th centuries. And it's considered normative and also modern authors attempt to follow its uh, syntactic and, and grammatical norms uh, and use the vocabulary defined in classical dictionary. So when I have a student who's uh, majoring in, in religious studies, uh, most of the time uh, they come uh, wants to learn classical Arabic because they want to read the Quran, they want to read the Bible, for example, in, in Arabic. The second form is, uh, is MSA. You know, as as I mentioned, the mother standard Arabic, and it's also based on on classical Arabic, and it is also the literary language used in most current printed Arabic publications, also in in, in media. So, if everybody, for example, who wants to work with the you know, uh, the CIA or the FBI or wants to go, you know, with with the military, it, come to my classes to learn MSA. That's the reason uh, they want to learn Arabic. And the third, uh, you know, um, uh, side of, of Arabic is is you know the dialects, and we have a lot of dialects. Like I mentioned, we have the Levantine Arabic dialect, we have the Egyptian Arabic dialect, the Maghribi, the Gulf dialect, and a lot of my students, for example, who come with you know, and they're majoring in, for example, you know, archaeology or anthropology, uh, for example or even in you know in in, in nursing they want to learn the dialect so that they're able to interact with the, with the student uh, or with the native speakers in in the arab world so our students have different uh, uh, reasons for learning arabic and like you said how 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 can you as a as as, as a professor try to uh, you know uh, 
uh, hold on to to those expectations you know one thing that you know i try to you know uh, to do in in my classes is to uh, make sure that you know my students know that they can definitely be able to uh, reach the level that they want to reach but it's going to take longer you know so it's not going to be in one semester or two semester or one year or two years they have to understand from the beginning that it's going to take longer that, than that and that it might you know need to go after their undergraduate studies you know it's going to probably need more uh, time and, and years after they finish their, their graduate studies i make it clear in the beginning from day one that's how we how it's gonna be so my students don't uh you know have that impression or the idea while they're studying arabic or they're minoring arabic that they're gonna be fluent you know so and when i tell them that and when i try to kind of uh, work on that you know from uh, uh, the first days of of classes they kind of uh, uh react uh, react to that to uh, kind of uh, become more uh, realistic as as we say but with the study abroad program that we've had since 2012 uh, 2013 we've been able to kind of uh, you know get our students to where we are uh, where, where they want to be uh, because when they go to uh, to morocco and it's an intensive and uh, intensive program they you know are able to reach a level that unfortunately they cannot reach here at georgia southern because of the the amount of hours you know uh, less than three hours a week so one thing like i said that, that we were kind of uh, fortunate to have is is the study abroad and that kind of help uh, our students to reach uh, the level that the the one they want to reach or get closer to it but most of our students who you know uh, studied arabic and major in it or even minor in it you know uh, end up going to uh, grad school and continuing with uh, with their arabic studies or continuing uh, or specializing in uh, the studies of arabic and, and middle eastern uh, studies so a lot of our students continue their their uh, studies after their graduate study their undergrad yusuf thank you uh, so much for your time today we appreciate you being a guest on the podcast and congratulations on all your successes teaching Arabic and building Arabic programs in different places in the United States. Uh, I hope anyone interested in Arabic, teaching Arabic, creating an Arabic program uh, can reach out to you. I will list your contact information in the show notes. Um, and we'd love to have you back on the podcast in the future. Thank you very much, Grant, for having me. I appreciate the time. And I was very happy to, to be with you. Thank you very much. And best of luck to you with your podcast. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the World Languages Collaborative Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And please give us a like and share this podcast with your colleagues and anyone interested in languages. To learn more about the World Languages Collaborative, contact Dr. Mark Linsky from Savannah Chatham County Public School System at mark.linsky at sccpss.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-K, dot Linsky, L-I-N-S-K-Y, at S-C-C-P-S-S dot com. Again, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.